Anyways, how are you today? Everyone's good? Yeah, you doing well? Awesome, me too. All right. Well, hey, I have the privilege this morning of kicking off a brand new series here in our church. We're talking about wrecked. Embracing the Father's heart for all people. We're talking about the heart of the Father, the heart of the Father. Friends, Jesus really was and is the activity of the Father's heart. Now, what do I mean by this, that he was the activity of the Father's heart? I mean that the heart of the Father, his, his character, his, his nature, his amazing love and radical grace for all people, especially the lost, This has been most clearly exemplified to us and for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? We see in the scriptures that Jesus, in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, right? He he is the the radiance, says the author of Hebrews, of God's glory and, and the exact representation of his being. Therefore, through his actions, through his words, his life, his very death, Right, we've just come through the Easter season where we celebrated the victory that Jesus won for us through the cross, through his death and his resurrection, and even through his death, friends, yes, his death, through, through everything he did, Jesus was the visible, tangible outworking of, uh, of God's heart towards the world. Everything he did pointed back to the Father. Everything he did, he did in submission to the Father's heart and the Father's will. Right, we see this in John 5, 19. Jesus says these words, Very truly, I tell you, the Son, Jesus, can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus was the activity of the Father's heart. Everything he said and did, all of it was a perfect reflection of who God is. And so if we want to get a a pulse for the heartbeat of the Father then surely it's as we look at Jesus, as we study his life, that we're able to, to see, to encounter, to experience for ourselves the Father's love. And so over the next few weeks, this is where we're going. We're, we're going to dive into three unique stories of Jesus, stories we believe that God wants to speak through to us on this topic of his heart and his love for all people, all people. Uh, on this topic of all people, let me just say, we had a, a, a really... Uh, amazing opportunity this last Friday to, to love all people in our city. Uh, there was a vigil held. It was called the Strasstrong Vigil uh, to remember those who, in the humble crash. Uh, and then also um, Ryan Strasnitsky, I think that's how you say his name, who's uh, an Airdrie boy who's paralyzed right now from the chest down. So he had this vigil, and actually Pastor Nathan was able to pray and, and to speak at this event and just to declare love over our city, the, the, the love and the favor of God. It was awesome. So if you were there, we just want to say, uh, way to go. Thanks for showing your support to our city and for these, these people. All right. Well, hey, if you have your Bible with you, come with me to Mark chapter 2, okay? Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1, this is a story that illustrates this idea of the Father's heart. And as you turn there, let me ask you this question. Did you know that God's heart is one that is wrecked over the lost? Did you know that? All right. A couple people did. Great. All right. Yeah, it is, man. It's, it's wrecked over the lost. He, he is wrecked over the state of humanity without him. And so much so that he has gone to the utmost extremes to ensure that all those who are far off will be brought near. You see, God is on a rescue mission. He's a God in relentless pursuit of restoring back to himself all that was lost and broken by sin. In other words, he's a God who doesn't want anyone to perish. 
but, but all to come to repentance. He's a God who wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is his heart. This is his passion. This is his pursuit, friends. It's us. We are his passion and his pursuit. And surely this is why he sent his son. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we read these words. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost, says Luke, to, to search and rescue, right? to find and to free all those stranded in sin, bringing them into life and liberty. This is why he, he came. He also came, says the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. This was and is the great mission of God. This is why he sent his son. And actually, this is now our mission. We've been commissioned to go and do what Jesus did, friends. To seek and save the lost and to destroy the works of the enemy. This, this was the end goal, the end goal that, that Jesus did everything he did. For his very life was the physical representation of the Father's heart. Jesus is the activity of, of the Father's heart. And it's a heart that's wrecked over the lost. And so as his people, as ones who have been sought out by God, as ones who have been saved by God, if our hearts aren't wrecked like his, friends, if our hearts aren't wrecked like his, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. And so this is why we're going hard in this series after the heart of the Father. All right, without any further delay, let's jump into the text. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1, I'm reading to verse 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you saying or thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Wow. What a story, hey? Wow. All right. So let me break the story down a little bit for us. Here is Jesus. Okay, he's just come back from an intense road trip with his disciples in Galilee, and now, says Mark, he's come back home, back to his home base of Capernaum. If you look back just a few verses into Mark chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus has just spent a number of days doing ministry. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been healing the sick. He's been doing deliverances on people who've been uh, oppressed by, by demons. He's doing exactly what the Father sent him to do, right? Seek and save the lost, destroy the works of the devil. This is what Jesus has been doing. And now, says Mark, he's back home, back in Capernaum, hanging out in somebody's house. 
Now, we don't know whose house this is. It might have been Jesus' house. It might have been Peter's house. We don't know. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, but he's in a home, okay? And very likely, he's looking forward to some R&R, right? He's just had an intense little ministry trip here, and he's probably wanting some R&R, and yet, instead of finding peace and quiet, instead of rest and relaxation, you know, having a bit of downtime with the boys, kick it back, put your feet up, just relax and chill out a little bit, instead of this, what happens... The opposite takes place. People start showing up from, from everywhere, right? As a result of Jesus' ministry, so his supernatural ministry, think signs and wonders and healings and miracles. Mark tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 45, that Jesus could no longer enter the towns because the, the, the crowds following him were so big, so intense, that these little towns actually couldn't contain the volume of people anymore. So it's kind of like thinking of, you know, Airdrie hosting, or the Airdrie Rodeo Grounds hosting the Calgary Stampede next summer, right? That's kind of crazy. Think 100,000 people, voomp, here we go in our little city. That's not little anymore, but in our city. It just, it just wouldn't work. We could not contain all these people. It's kind of like what's happening right here in this. Jesus can't go into towns because the people are just so many of them. And yet here he, he comes back home to Capernaum, back from this road trip, and he's inside this house, and what happens? Right, this huge, intense crowd of people starts showing up. And I mean, it's a, it's a mixed bag of people. There, there are disciples there. there. There are curious onlookers there. Even the religious leaders have shown up. And then, of course, there are men and women who are desperate from a, or for a touch from Jesus. They, they show up, right? The, the sick, the needy, the destitute. I mean, everyone's there. And this crowd... This multitude of people has now formed inside of this house and outside of this house and, and around this house, this single Palestinian or single room Palestinian home, right? And I mean like it's, it's jam-packed, bumper to bumper, shoulder to shoulder. It, it's packed out. I'm literally breathing in the air as you're breathing it out. It's kind of gross, right? Feels a bit claustrophobic. It says that the doorway was even jam-packed. People couldn't get in. They couldn't get out. You're just, you're stuck. If you're sitting there and you have to pee, too bad, I guess, right? Like you, you got to hold it, man. Jesus is now doing something. So we're in this, this house, and what does Jesus do? Did you notice what Jesus does? These people kind of show up. They start intruding on his personal space. Does he, does he, does he kick them out? Does he say, hey, come back later when I'm rested up? Come, come back when you get a proper invite or when I actually want you here? No, of course not. He doesn't do that at all. Instead, what do we see? Jesus begins to teach them. He stops whatever it is that he's doing, and he he, he, he spends time with these people. Friends, if this doesn't begin to communicate the Father's heart to us, then I don't, I don't know what does. All right, picking up at verse 3, let me continue reading the story for us, okay? Verse 3, some men came, says Mark, bringing to him, to Jesus, a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. So there, there might have been more guys, but at least four are carrying this dude, okay? Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So here's this crazy crowd, and guess what? Even more people now show up, right? More people, and they're carrying with them this paralyzed man. Now, we don't, we don't know how this guy got paralyzed, right? We don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if maybe he was in like a mountain biking accident. I guess they didn't have bikes, right? So mountain horsing, right? Maybe he fell and hurt himself. Maybe he got sick 
and he just found, got paralyzed, right? So we, we don't exactly know what happened to this guy, but what we do know is that he's unable to walk, right? He's paralyzed. His friends have to carry him to Jesus. We, we also actually don't know if these men who are carrying the paralyzed guy, if they're friends of his or not. We, we don't know if they're, they're buddies, they're friends, they're cousins. Maybe, maybe they're just doing ministry in the streets, and they see this dude begging, and they're like, he needs to see Jesus. And so they pick him up, and they carry him along. We actually don't know that relationship we just, we just don't know things. We can assume things, but we don't know the true relationship. However, what we do know here in the text is that these men, that they had somehow heard of Jesus as a healer. They somehow knew that Jesus was able to, to heal their friend. And what we know from their actions, it's very clear here in the story, that these men were so utterly convinced that Jesus had the ability to make their friend well, that they made it their mission that day to do whatever they could to get their friend in front of Jesus. We, we know this. How do we know this? Simply put, because when they couldn't go through the door, what do they do? They go through the roof, right? They dig through the roof. Talk about a bit extreme. It's like I come to your house, the door doesn't work, and I just like, per, like become like the Kool-Aid man, and I, bam, I just smash through your wall, right? You know what I mean? This is kind of what happens. It's extreme. It's destructive. But this is, this is what they do, okay? All right. So now just, just in case... When you're reading the story, you kind of think that this is a, a mud hut, you know, and a brittle little thatch roof. And these guys, you know, the light's peeking through the, the little slats in the roof, and they can easily just dig through it, and ba-doo, here they are in front of Jesus, right? Uh, if, if this is what you're thinking, this is an easy task, let, let me correct this picture for you, okay? This, this last week, it sounds really exciting, but I got to do some um, research on Palestinian architecture. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it was sweet. And I learned some really interesting things. I was actually quite stunned with what I discovered. You see, while the, while the walls of these homes were constructed of like big rocks, they were kind of pieced together and, and held together by mud and clay mortar, the roofs were actually quite the engineering feat. These, these roofs, unlike ours here, you know, our, our roofs have a pitch, right? They're sloped and slanted because of all the yucky white stuff we get here. It's still April and it's supposed to snow again. It's gross. So we have pitched roofs, but, but their roofs were actually made flat. And they were made to be like an exterior living room. They, they would use these, these roofs. In the summer months, because it was hot, right? Think Middle East. It's hot. These guys would actually, or families would sleep on their roofs to keep cool. So a family of two, a family of five, a family of eight. People are on this roof and sleeping. So it's got to be able to hold some weight, right? These, these roofs were also um, used as like a, a kitchen or as like storage space. They would store grains and fruits and, and meat products on their, on their roofs or dry stuff out on their roof. They would just also just chill out on it. It's like a living room, right? They just hang out on this roof. So it's got to be sturdy. It's not a flimsy roof if it's holding this kind of weight. So to get an accurate picture... Of, of, of what these guys are actually dealing with when they're digging through this roof. Let me explain how one of these things is built, okay? So typical construction for these roofs, it, it actually involved first uh, thick wooden beams, round wooden beams. Think like the trunks of trees. And they would, they would span from wall to wall, resting on the tops of these walls across the width of the house for the whole length of the house, kind of spaced 12 to 18 inches apart. These, these beams would then actually be covered with rocks and more mortar and built into the structure of the walls, and there'd be a little bit of a wall around the perimeter of the top of the, of the roof, okay? So no one would fall off when they're sleeping. I guess that's why they did it. But it makes it the house solid and sturdy, these big beams. Builders would then cover these beams perpendicularly, so like a crisscross pattern, with sticks, and they cover the whole roof with sticks. They would then take these mats, these big woven mats made out of reeds and canes, about one inch thick, so kind of think like a big four by eight, one inch thick piece of plywood, 
and they would cover these sticks and these beams with these mats, the whole, the whole top of the roof. They'd cover it all. On top of that, they would then put some, some mud and some hay and some clay. It kind of acts like a cement, and it binds all these mats together. We're not done yet. They would then take uh, dirt and ash and, and, uh, and clay or chalk, and they would, they would put a whole bunch of stuff on top, about five to six inches of this dirt mixture on top of the roof. They would then pack it down with like a big old baking rolling pin made out of stones. They would roll it over the roof, packing it, condensing it more and more, making it that much more sturdy and solid and flat. We're talking about five to six inches of packed dirt, okay? Finally, they would then take a clay kind of plaster and they would paint or paste that on top of all this dirt to seal the roof from any water leaks. So this, all in all, friends, this is like a 12 to 18 inch thick roof. It's not a flimsy thatch roof. One thing that was interesting too is this last final layer of plaster, uh, people would actually reapply it year after year after year to keep the water out. So depending on if this is a, a two-year-old house or a 20-year-old house, however many years it is old, that's how many layers of plaster they've got to still dig through too. So again, we don't know how old this house is, but we can imagine 12 to 18 inches they've got to dig through. This is not a flimsy roof, all right? Just an idea to talk about how strong these roofs are. Think back to the story of King David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, right? He's out on his balcony, he's chilling out one night, and he sees this woman, she's hanging out in a hot tub on her roof, right? Bathsheba is bathing on the roof. She's on a roof in a, in a tub full of water. That's a ton of weight that's being supported by a roof, Right? Try doing that on your roof. It would probably crash through. It wouldn't work. Right? So the, these are strong roofs. So let me, let me ask this question. How easy do you think it was for these men to do this? To dig through this roof? And I'm not talking about like a little tiny hole where the guy could just like slip through. They lowered him down on the mat. This is a man-sized hole, friends. How, how easy do you think this would have been? Was this easy? No, thank you, yeah, not easy at all, right? Like, like seriously, to dig through all these layers of dirt and, and wood, it would have taken these guys hours, right? This would not have been an easy task. It would have taken them hours. This also would not have been a, a kind of inconspicuous task. Just think about it. Jesus is teaching, and he's trying to preach to the people, and all they can hear is these guys on the roof banging away, right? They're trying to break through the roof for hours. Like, that sucks, right? Like, that's loud. That's annoying. The house is probably, like, shaking, and they're thinking, what is happening? And Jesus is just teaching away, right? Like, it's not inconspicuous. And then, let me say this. It's also not cheap, is it? Mark doesn't talk about the owner of the house, but we can only imagine what he or she is thinking. They're like, ah, it's April, it's snowing again, there's a big hole in my roof. And they're like, sorry, bro, right? Like, this is not a cheap thing. They're digging through this roof. They're ripping it open, ripping the roof off. This is not easy. It's not convenient. And yet, this is exactly what these guys do. You see, when these guys could not get their paralyzed friend to Jesus by normal means, when these guys come into contact with this obstacle that would seek to keep their friend away from Jesus, would seek to keep him from encountering Jesus instead of giving up hope and going home, instead of using this as an excuse of, of why they couldn't bring their friend to Jesus, right? It's too hard. It's too inconvenient. I'm too busy. I don't want to make a scene. I, I don't want to look like a fool to everybody else. Instead of allowing this rather large speed bump to keep this paralyzed friend from Jesus, these men chose rather to do the, the seemingly impossible, right? The, 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 this, this radical, audacious thing. They choose, friends, when they can't go through the door, they choose to go through the roof. You know what I love about these characters 
in the stories that you can see their heart for their friend and their actions, can't you? You can see their heart for this paralyzed man in their actions. You see, they didn't just dig through a roof. Yeah, they did, but they actually did more. You see, they chose to stop at nothing in order for their friend to meet with Jesus. They, they chose to stop at nothing for their friend to be made well. They chose to adopt the heart of the Father for this paralyzed man. I think some of us here today need to become a little more like these men. Would you agree? I think some of us need to stop letting obstacles keep us from, from bringing our friends to Jesus. I think some of us need to stop making excuses for why we, we can't pray for, we can't encourage, we can't share the gospel with those around us. And I, I think some of us need to get a little more wrecked over the lost. We've got to get a little more wrecked over our neighbor, over our barber, the cashier at the grocery store, the woman in the wheelchair who so desperately needs a touch from Jesus. I think we need to start digging through roofs a little more often. Would you agree? I know I do. We've got to start acting a little bit more like these men who saw their paralyzed friend not as an inconvenience, not, not as an embarrassment or someone unworthy of their efforts, but as someone deeply loved by the Father and absolutely worth the inconvenience and the embarrassment and the effort that digging through this roof would have brought them. You see, friends, this is the heart of the Father. This is the heart of the Father. It's one that is unwilling to allow obstacles to keep those made in his image and likeness from encountering his amazing love. God's heart is for all people. And he is so unwilling that any should perish that he has gone to the utmost extremes. To, you know, he, he leaves heaven. He, he, he comes to earth as a man. He limits himself to our experience and our existence, our, our suffering, our pain. And he chooses to die for us, a people undeserving Oh, also we could be restored back into relationship with him. And why, why did he do it? Right? Why does he do this? It's because he loves us. It's because he loves us, and it's because he says, you're worth it. You and, and me, all of us, all those who are still far off, still stuck in their sin, he says, you are worth it. You're worth digging through that roof that, that barricade between heaven and earth, digging through it and coming to us, friends, ripping open the heavens, coming to us as our savior and as our healer and as our king, amen? He says you're worth it. This is the heart of the father. All right, so what happens to the paralyzed man? Right, well, what happens to him? So clearly, his friends are successful. They dig through the roof. They get him to Jesus. We don't know how long or hard they're, they're working for. We can assume they're working hard but we don't know how many of them there were, but we know that they're fueled by love, they're fueled by faith, and they managed to pull off the impossible and get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. Which brings us to Mark chapter 2, verse 5. We read these words, when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralyzed man's son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want to talk for a moment about humanitarianism versus true love. Or as we're calling it in this series, you know, the heart of the Father, the love of the Father. Humanitarianism versus the love of the Father. Now, I know I just talked at length about these, these men, right? These guys who are fueled by love, who stop at nothing to get their friend in front of Jesus. They want their friend to be made well. However, I do want to point out something in the text I think is helpful for us. I think it's helpful to, to learn that much more about the Father's heart. It's helpful for us to learn how to embrace the Father's heart for ourselves. And it's found in this statement that Jesus says to him, son, 
Your sins are forgiven. So let me ask this. Why does Jesus say to the guy, hey, your sins are forgiven? Is Jesus trying to draw a correlation here saying, well, he sinned and that's why he's paralyzed? Is Jesus trying to make this guy feel guilty? You know, rub his nose in it a little bit. Hey, you disgraceful human being. I I don't think so, right? Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So I don't think he's condemning this guy. So why why is he saying this over this man? I think rather what Jesus is doing here by declaring, son, your sins are forgiven, he's doing a twofold thing. A, he's contrasting the love of the, the friends with the love of the father. And then B, he's actually tangibly showing them God's heart. So let me explain this. First, while, while these men have gone to the utmost extremes to ensure that their friend gets well, right? That's, they want their friend to come to Jesus so he can be healed. We, we know that. Well, Jesus, too, friends, while, while he cares and is concerned for our physical well-being, right? he, he wants this paralyzed guy to be well just as much as the friends do. But Jesus isn't only worried about his physical well-being. You see, he's also worried about his spiritual well-being as well. You see, these men, while they are fueled by love, their sole desire here is to get their friends in front of Jesus so he can be healed, so he can be fully made well, right? So he can receive medical treatment and, and, and live a healthy, full life. And this is a good desire. This, this is a good desire. It's a great desire. It's something that we ourselves should be living into, right? We have been given a ministry just like Jesus, just like he modeled for us, just like he commanded for us. That includes the healing of the sick, right? Amen? This is part of our ministry. We see this in Matthew 10, 8. Jesus says to his disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you've received. Now freely give it away. Right? This is our ministry. And this is God's heart. This needs to be our heart as well. However, let me say this. If our desire for our friends to be made physically whole outweighs or outshines our desire for them to be made spiritually whole, we're missing something. If we, if we go to the extremist lengths to get our friends to, to be healed by Jesus, and yet they walk away not knowing really truly who it was who healed them or what he has to fully offer, friends, we've missed the point. I think this is what Jesus is getting at here when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, love, friends, without the gospel, love without the gospel is simply humanitarianism. And I think that this is what these friends were doing. Now, maybe they just didn't know any better. But love without the gospel, it's simply humanitarianism. You see, the gospel has the power to save, friends, has the power to save. And while many good deeds have, have been done in the name of love by many good people, right? Well, well, well the gospel, friends, it, it, just, it doesn't just meet, meet a need that is temporal or, or that falls away with like, like humanitarianism does, but actually the gospel with love and love with the gospel, it meets this eternal need. You see, humanitarianism meets a, a need. It makes us, our physical experience a little bit better. But the gospel, friends, it makes our eternal existence that much better. Are you tracking with me? Do you see, this is why Jesus is declaring this over this man. Right? He's not just about humanitarianism. He's about seeking and saving the lost. This is the Father's heart. You see, while the Father is for all people, he's for every single person. He's actually for all of each of us. Does that make sense? He cares about us holistically. He's not just concerned about our physical well-being, but he's that much more concerned about our our, our spiritual well-being as well. This is the love of the Father. It's one that desires us to walk in complete wholeness. And I think this is why Jesus says to the guy, your sins are forgiven. It's like he's saying it's the Father's heart to make you whole. 
to make you well, not just physically, not just emotionally, but, but spiritually well, to bring life to your dead spirit. And it's, this, it's to this end that I've come. It's, it's to this end that I've come for you, son. I've come to seek and save the lost. Your sins are forgiven. This is the heart of the Father. In the New Testament, the Greek word for save or for salvation is sozo. Sozo. And it actually has a threefold meaning. It means to, to save or rescue from destruction, so i.e. to forgive sin. It means to heal and to restore health. And it means to deliver, deliver from bondage or from demonic oppression. That's what salvation actually means. It's not just this Willy Wonka-style ticket where we get into the chocolate factory when we die, okay? That's not salvation. It actually includes so much more. Forgiveness of sin, healing of the physical body, deliverance from the demonic oppression. That's salvation. Isn't this incredible, friends? This is sozo. This is salvation. This is what Jesus came to do, to forgive, to heal, to deliver, to make us well, body, soul, and spirit, all of us. This is what Jesus came to do, friends. And let me just say this. This isn't just a a New Testament thing or a New Testament idea. This idea actually has its roots in the Old Testament, Right? That, that, that God, when he declares salvation, it's, it's actually this idea of, of healing as, as well, or, or this, this full idea of salvation. In the Old Testament, healing and, and forgiveness are actually these interchangeable terms. Let me, let me show you a few examples. In Psalm 41.4, we read these words, Have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned. Do you see that? I've sinned against you. Heal me, for I have sinned. Jeremiah 3.22 Return, faithless people, and I will cure you. I will rafa, heal you, in the Hebrew, of your backsliding, your sin. And then Hosea 14.4, I will heal their waywardness, says God. I will heal their sin and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Friends, this is, this is the difference between humanitarianism and the love of the Father. Right? While these friends were, were concerned for the physical part of their paralyzed buddy, Jesus is like, I'm concerned for all of you. I want you to know that your sins are forgiven. Sozo. What do we see in Psalm 103, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all of his benefits, who heals you, sorry, who forgives you of all of your sins and heals you of all of your diseases. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what he's declaring right here in this moment. This is the Father's heart. And if it's the Father's heart, it's got to be our heart as well, Amen. It's got to be our heart as well. well. One of the coolest aha moments for me this past week as I was studying out this, this passage was in verse 11 where Jesus says to the guy, get up. He says, get up, take your mat and go home, okay? T- get up, take your mat, go home. The word get up, as we see in verse 11, it's a, it comes from the verb, the Greek verb egero, and it actually means to arise. Arise, he's saying. Get up, arise, stand up. But, but more than that, he's actually saying, wake up. Wake up, not just from sleep. Wake up from death and come to life. That's the meaning of a gayro. Isn't that wonderful? Are you tracking with me what's happening here? When Jesus says to him, get up, go home, he's not just saying, hey, buddy, stand up and start walking. He's saying, I'm actually declaring over you salvation. Rise from death to life. Son, your sins have been forgiven. You've been made well. All of you now get up and arise. This is incredible. For me, anyways, I was stoked when I read that. Wow, wow, wow. It's not just physical healing. It's not just emotional healing. It's not just deliverance. It's it's all of it, friends, salvation. And it's all found in the person of Jesus. This is the Father's heart. 
I want you to listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 35. These prophetic words to strengthen the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Say to those of the fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame, the paralyzed, leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. That's the Father's heart, isn't it? This is what he longs to do for us, each of us. And this is what he longs for us to go out and do, compelled by his love, you know, motivated by his love, carrying his love to, to lead others into. He wants everyone to experience this kind of salvation. Well, in our remaining minutes, I just want to look at one more group of people here in the story in Mark chapter 2. And, and that's the religious leaders or the scribes, as Mark likes to call them. Picking up at verse 6 in Mark 2, let me keep reading the story for us. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, arise, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So here are these men, these religious leaders, these you know, full-time vocational preachers or pastors, if you will, back in the day. And their very life purpose, their ambition was to study the word of God, to, to know the word of God, to live out the word of God. And yet here they are standing in opposition to the very person and work of Jesus who is the activity of the Father's heart. We've got to ask ourselves, why are they doing this? Right? Why are they doing this? Why are they calling him a blasphemer? Why are they, they trying or working so hard to stop everything that he's doing? You see, it's because, friends, their hearts aren't ruled by the love of the Father. Their hearts are ruled by their love of religion. Their hearts are ruled by their love of religiosity. You see, their hearts are ruled by the religious spirit. And it's a spirit that has caused them to completely misunderstand, to completely miss out on who Jesus is and why he's come. And here in the text, they think he's blaspheming. However, in Jesus' proclamation of forgiveness of sin, which in the original language is actually in the indicative and passive voice, so it means not your sins are forgiven, but your sins have been forgiven. Jesus isn't actually operating as God here. He's not claiming to be divine or to be God. He's actually fulfilling three Old Testament prophetic roles that were declared over his life. He's operating as priest and prophet and king. Right? He's absolving this guy of his sin, just like a priest would do. He's declaring over this guy prophetically, just like the prophet Nathan, I look at you, but the prophet Nathan did over, over King David, right? Saying your sins are forgiven. He's declaring over him, this is, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is, this is your destiny. You're forgiven. God has forgiven you. And then he's also declaring over him that he's king. He's, he's, he's functioning, he's operating as king here. And he, he says this in, in Mark 2.10, or he, he points to this with this statement, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Right? He's saying, I, I have authority. I actually have the authority to do this. I have the authority. And he proves that authority by saying to the guy, get up, arise, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy does. 
right? He's operating as priest and prophet and king. He's actually not operating as God here. And so let me just say this. Jesus, while he was fully God, yes, absolutely, fully God, never for a moment did he stop being God. But friends, what he did, he didn't do out of his divinity. He actually did it out of a spirit-anointed humanity, just like you and I can. He, he came to model for us this life that we could live in, walk in after him. You see, Jesus was a man, as, as Acts 10.38 says, anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. Holy Spirit and, and power which enabled him to do good works and to heal all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. The Father was with him by the Spirit. Right, if you don't believe me, check out Acts 10.38. And then also, check out Luke's version of this same story. Luke chapter 5, where the same guy, same paralytic, is let down through the same house. And what do we see in 5.17? It says, the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal. Right? So Jesus is just, he's not, he's not saying, ta-da, I'm God. He's not saying that. The religious leaders think that's what he's saying. And this is why they start calling him a blasphemer. And then we kind of ask, well, what else are they not understanding? What else are they missing? And I would say this too, it's, yes, they're, they're kind of misunderstanding what he's saying, but, but they're, they're actually really upset also with, with who he's saying it to. It's with who Jesus is declaring this. It's, it's who Jesus is speaking over in this moment. It's this sick, paralyzed, unclean man. You see, it was Jesus' friendship with tax collectors and with sinners and with the sick and with the unclean, the apparent least of these in Jewish culture that brought the strongest charges against him by the religious leaders. Why were the Pharisees so angry at Jesus? It's because of his conduct, his, his love towards all people, especially the sick and the unclean and the least of these. This, this is what ultimately drove the religious leaders to hate Jesus and to kill Jesus. It's because he was a man with the heart of the Father. His, his heart, just, just like the Father's, was wrecked over all people, especially those far from God. You see, the heart ruled by the religious spirit is a heart that is more concerned about judgment and getting what you deserve than it is with grace and mercy and love. The, the heart ruled by the religious spirit is a heart categorized and compelled by, by lists of rules, lists of, of laws, lists of do's and don'ts. It's a heart concerned for hierarchy and elitism, you know, earning one's standing before God. It's a heart that says one is better than the other, that one is more lovable or more worthy than the other. It's a heart that intentionally disassociates myself with everybody else. Everybody else deemed not as good as me, unclean, sick, whatever. And yet, wasn't the issue of our value settled at the cross, friends? Each of our value. Didn't Christ die for all of us while we were still wallowing in our sin? He died for all of us. You see, while the religious spirit declares some worthy, God declares all worthy. While the religious spirit declares only some lovable, God declares all lovable and loved. And you see, unlike the religious leaders and the scribes, Jesus' heart was for all people. Not just the religious elites, not just you know, evangelical Christians or Caucasian Canadians. His heart is for all people, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, every person, from pastors and preachers to pimps and prostitutes. Right? God's heart's for all. From the rich and the religious to those who live in refugee camps and on reserves, his heart's for all of them. His heart is for dentists and doctors just as much as it is for the disabled and the destitute. He's a father who loves the drunks, who loves the damaged, who loves the demonized, who loves the damned. He, he loves the lost just as much as the found. He loves the wealthy just as much as the poor. He loves the helpless just as much as those he has already helped by his grace. He loves them all, friends. 
He loves them all. He's a father who is so desperately in love with each of his kids. And nothing we do, no sin too heinous, no secret too dark, no, no, no life too broken and just jacked up that, that would disqualify us from being the apple of our heavenly father's eye. He sees hearts for all people. Even those struggling with the religious spirit, his heart is for all people. Did you hear that? For all people. The issue of our value is settled at the cross, friends. This is the Father's heart. It's one that's for all of us. And it's one that's for all of each of us. And so actually, Pastor Joel is going to sing a song over us as we kind of wrap up here. And he's going to sing this song prophetically over us this morning. Now, we're not going to have the words on the screen, but I want you to sit and just to listen and reflect. And I'm actually going to put some questions on the screen for you just to ponder. I say self-reflection. This is actually called spirit-led reflection. And these are the four questions I want you to ask. Who are you in the story today? Who are you in the story? Are you the friends of, Je- or the, of the paralyzed man? Are you the scribes? Maybe, maybe you're Jesus and you're, you're rocking the heart of the Father and we celebrate that. That's awesome. Or maybe you're the paralytic and you're in need of, you're desperately in need of salvation, forgiveness, of healing, of deliverance. Who are you in the story? And then what needs to change today? What needs to change today in your life today? Question three, who has God placed in your life that needs to know, to feel, to see, to hear, to experience the Father's love? Who has he placed in your life? And then finally, where do you need to experience the love of the Father in your own life today? Where do you need to experience it? Maybe you're hearing, this is your first time hearing about Jesus. Maybe you're one of those people that would not classify as a Christian. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Maybe for you today, you need to receive his forgiveness of sins. And he's wanting to declare over you, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Receive it. Accept it. Maybe for you, you need healing of sickness. Maybe you need uh, deliverance from bondage. Maybe you just need to know that you're actually loved. So Joel's going to sing this over us. Let's reflect, and then he'll come back up so we can respond.